Good morning, intrepid South by participants and guests for the 10 a.m. Sunday morning event. So we're here to talk about, how did we say it? Innovating organ transplant supply chain with UAS. But I can tell you it's a lot more uh, personal to this panel. It's also tremendously more emotional to this panel than we think about a normal supply chain. Um, and uh, in some ways, it's uh, one of the uh, areas of healthcare that maybe doesn't get enough attention but could get more attention because with more participation from the community, from the, comp from the country, you could actually have more life-saving transplants with less um, expenditure. One of the only areas of healthcare we could probably even imagine that to be. So I have a, a question I like always to talk, start with, and you don't have to put your driver's license out, but my driver's license is here, and there's a little heart on my driver's license, and that heart says that I'm an organ donor. So how many people today are organ donors, do you know? Is that pretty much everybody? Doc? Organ donor. What? How about a show of hands? How about, this, is the, this is the transplant surgeon. <laughs> I was just looking for clients. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, and everybody's a multitasker, so if you are not an organ donor, go to organdonor.gov right now and get yourself registered. It's very easy to do. Um, we're going to give you guys a glimpse in today of the people and systems which enable you know, the U.S. transplant system, which is by far uh, in the world the largest in terms of number of organs transplanted, lives saved, lives impacted. Um, we say supply chain, but we say that with a great awareness around the... Um, you know, the association with, the, with a life-saving transplant often comes with uh, a tragedy or someone's death. So we, we think about that and we honor that, and, and Kevin Meyer is going to talk quite a bit about that, the honor as well as Joe, uh, how we honor uh, donors. But imagine to yourself that heart's on your license, and, you know, think of it as a life-giving gift and making sense out of illness, making sense out of tragedy. Um, this group of entrepreneurs and surgeons and innovators are dedicated to ensuring that when you or your family or ones that you love have that impact of a terrible situation where someone passes away, you can create almost a second life, you know, a sense of, a sense of uh, meaning to that death by being able to donate organs and providing that donation to someone that you love and saving their life. Um, we approach this from many different areas. We're certainly talking about drones today, but there's so much more to this complexity with Kevin Meyer and, and Michael and, and Joe are going to talk about. Um, I'm going to introduce myself. My name is Scott Plank. I'm the moderator today, and um, I'm an entrepreneur and an impact investor. Um, most relevant to what we're talking about today, I spent uh, several decades, uh, what to me is a very long time ago, uh, building uh, Under Armour with my brother Kevin. So we were partners for a long time, and easiest way to say it is, among other things that I did, I built what you might call the platform on which the brand, uh, the global brand was created. So anything from the technology side to everything from IP to, uh, in this case, you know, building a global supply chain from uh, literally our own small uh, uh, sewing facility smaller than this room to multi-million square foot uh, distribution facilities all around the globe, as well as... Um, uh, selling and, and creating all around the globe. When I retired from Under Armour about 10 years ago, um, I began investing in early stage companies 
um, that where I felt that I could have a personal impact and a personal um, uh, uh, something to say, having built a company from literally zero to venture financing, we use sub-debt financing through taking our company public. When I left, we had about uh, 15,000 employees and $1.8 billion in revenue. Two of the interesting companies that are relevant is one was a company called um, uh, WeWork, we're all familiar with. That was the largest um, angel in WeWork. Uh, spent a lot of time building that company as well as a company called EverFi, which increases uh, access and uh, equity and education digitally. Um, what we're doing, talking about today relative to what I do is two companies that have a strong impact with both the underlying concept of the supply chain as well as what are you know commonly known as IoT, et cetera. But one of them is called Mission Go, and Mission Go is an unmanned aircraft services company, and we do two things. Most relevant here is we do tremendous amount of research for organizations that Joe and Kevin and Michael work on uh, around uh, critical medical cargo and how can we make it more efficient, more carbon, uh, carbon neutral, quieter, faster, cheaper, quicker. Um, and we also, through Mission Go, work on the, co the corollary to that is everything we're talking about at South By is about electrification, but our power grid needs constant, constant upgrade, resilience, and expansion. So uh, Mission Go also does uh, power grid inspections. The biggest contract now is Southern California Edison, where you're literally flying to make sure there are no fires, there are no issues, and that we have resiliency within our power grid. The next other company is called Medigo. Um, and Joe and I work together on both of these companies, but uh, Medigo we work tremendously on. And Medigo effectively, if you think of this as a supply chain, you're going to hear about tremendous number of participants in that supply chain. Medigo creates an underlying uh, technology IoT platform that is also an integrated network amongst hospitals, participants, frankly donors and recipients. Um, and that network enables uh, a number of things, again relevant here, is how are we creating an AI decision support tool for recognizing that today, traditional tra uh, transportation, of course, is a car, a helicopter, an airplane. Well, you're going to hear today on our panel, as well as what you're hearing throughout Southwest, South by, is every one of those is now going to have another one. So I'm no mathematician, but I could imagine if I had a permutation of choices of mode of transportation that is four or five, and now I have ten, Medigo is setting out to gather data, et cetera, to help people like Joe and uh, Kevin to be able to deliver faster critical medical, um, uh, uh, quicker to the right place, cold chain, chain of custody, mode of transportation, et cetera. So that's what I work on every day. Um, and uh, I'm going to start with um, having each of my panelists introduce themselves. And Dr. Scalia, if you don't mind, give a little bit about yourself. And then we'll run on, and then I'm going to have questions for you. Great. Thank you. Um, Incredible to be here. My first time in Austin. We are trying our best to keep it weird, as they say. Um, big thanks to Scott, my now very good friend and business partner of really going on four years or more, uh, for the willingness to take a jump into something that is a little bit out there, right? Not, not a lot of folks who spend time in supply chain say, oh, I'm going to go take a stab at organ transplant. Um, so it takes a really special person with a big heart to go after something like this. But the impact that we can have if we get this right is really striking. And that's part of the reason that we're up here today. I'm a transplant surgeon. I uh, feel very fortunate to um, sort of carry that badge. Um, it's certainly challenging, but it's an incredible honor to be able to provide a legacy of life for those patients who are dying of organ failure and the families of those folks who have died. Um, 
I tell the, the trainees and the medical students every time we do a transplant, it is cool every single time. I mean, it never gets old. It's so cool. I have like the coolest job ever. Um, you know, to, to be able to participate in the, the generation of decades of life. Um, but it's too hard. It's too hard. In growing the transplant program previously in Baltimore, where I was for 20 years with Scott, and I got to know each other real well, having spent time previously training at the University of Wisconsin at MGH in Boston, thinking about the complexity of transplant, as we built a clinical program, I just encountered all the situations where we, we recognized that many times, although I had an organ and I had a recipient, I couldn't do the transplant. And I would say, why, why can't I do the transplant? And my organ bank colleagues, like uh, Kevin will describe shortly, would say, it's it's, you know, based on the distance and the time, it won't arrive until the organ has effectively biologically expired. And I reject that hypothesis. I think that's wrong. And so, um, you know, my laboratory began directing its resources towards innovating the movement of organs in a way that would be more efficient such that we could go directly from a donor to a recipient hospital, in some cases using uh, unmanned aircraft. Um, as a result of that, we needed to build the technologies which connected in an IoT fashion, a term I didn't know at the time, uh, that connected each of those different participants, stakeholders, and technologies in a way that we would be able to not only have the information that we needed, but the transparency around it to better schedule organ transplants. That concept uh, in, in laboratory form became what we now know as Medigo and MissionGo combined, and I could not be prouder to be a participant in these, uh, these incredible companies uh, with a good friend of mine, uh, Scott, and, and all of our other incredible partners in those organizations. So I look forward to more discussion about all this, and thank you for the opportunity to be here. Thank you, Joe. Kevin Myers. Great. Thank, thanks, Scott. Um, my name is Kevin Meyer. I serve as President and Chief Executive Officer for LifeGift, and we are <clears throat> the nonprofit organ and tissue donation agency based in Houston, Texas. Uh, we also serve Fort Worth and West Texas. And um, uh, accomplishing the successful uh, authorization process and the, the recovery of organs and the transportation of organs to transplant centers where patients are waiting under the care of uh, surgeons like uh, Dr. Scalia is a hugely complex endeavor. So it's one of the most important aspects of what I've been doing since 1990. I started out talking with families in crisis and losing a loved one. Um, to talk to them about their opportunities to donate. And the two words that come from that, which we never want to lose and what we do across this coalition of willing people to solve a huge, huge opportunity to help get more patients transplanted is it's a privilege. It's always an honor. It's always hallowed ground speaking with families who, in the worst time of their lives, make the decision to donate is in terms of a deceased um, donor to other folks or their families um, give authorization and also there's living donation. That's the beginning. And then we have at least 600 critical rate limiting steps we have to accomplish for us as an organ procurement organization to do the evaluation of the individual who wants to be a donor or can be a donor and then collect that information, so that's also logistics, it's information logistics, and be able to present a picture of that situation to the transplant surgeon whose patient is identified through what everyone has heard about the match list. The match list is always talked about, you know, in media and so forth. 
So our, our work as an organ procurement organization is to connect all those pieces. And so from beginning to end, two major, major challenges that we have um, are always about time, longer time, more tissue deg degradation, organ degradation, and potential impact on the outcome of patients who receive transplant distance. And so there are 57 organ procurement organizations in the United States. Some are smaller, some are larger. And you know, it's interesting, we start talking about what we do, and this is why it's so, I'm so grateful to have the support and the initiative of Scott and his team with Mission Go and Medigo and Joe and Michael with the work you're doing. You know, when you fly from Houston to LA, half of our flight time is just getting out of the state of Texas. So I'm not, I'm not sure how many of you in here are from Texas, but it's a lot of work. Then I'm going to tack on one other thing. One of the projects that we've been working on called the Matador Project, which is building upon and with leadership from Scott and Joe and the team Michael, is in West Texas, for example. It's extremely rural. The distances are huge. The airport shut down at 10 o'clock. So when we're working on mission-critical cases, trying to find ways to get preciously donated organs back to the transplant centers under a time crunch, it's really a lot of work. But again, it's what we do. And we've done a million transplants in the United States now, overall. And just in 22, we did, we worked with, across the country, about 22,000 actual organ donors. We transplanted almost 43,000 organs. So we are helping people. And last thing, the list is 100,000 people waiting, but there are 3 million people in the United States who are suffering from end-stage renal disease who could benefit from transplant. So we are just on the cutting edge. We are dealing with health equity and access, which is so important for all of us and everything we do, especially in medicine. We'll talk more about that. Michael, thank you. I want to thank... Um uh, Kevin also, so I'm uh, the new guy. I used to sell shirts and shoes, used to used to uh, shill uh, uh, shared office space. But uh, Kevin and uh, Joe have been mentors to me, you know, and it is it is an interesting thing to think about. How do we bring technology and experience from outside? And this we're in the healthcare health and health tech conference here. So often it can be you even looking at yourselves. What are all the areas that you bring expertise to healthcare? that uh, healthcare has that need. So thank you so much for the mentorship, data mapping, introductions, et cetera. So Michael Helander is a uh, uh, CEO founder of Airspace Link, and um, he's gonna talk about the different ways that, you know, you think about why can't we yet just run drones wherever we want. And Michael is solving that problem in a huge way across the country. So please introduce yourself. Thank you. Um, I'm honored to be up here with you guys, folks. It's pretty amazing because when we started Aerospace Link, I didn't expect to be on stage with companies like this. Um, so this is this is amazing. But we did have a you know our purpose of our company and our vision was that the safe integration of drones would fuel human progress, advancing social equity, the environment, the economy, and, and drones for good. Um, so what we do, uh, think of us as the uh, Google Maps for drones. But the roads don't exist yet. So our, we're contracting with the federal government um, 
We've been a service supplier of low altitude uh, airspace here in the United States for three years. And now we're working with communities and, and, and cities to start to integrate this digital network or infrastructure to support drones. So we currently are integrated into 732 airports across the United States. Um, we currently have about 15,000 pilots on our platform. We authorize uh, hundreds and even thousands of flights per day. People probably don't realize that. That's for recreational pilots, Part 107, commercial pilots. And the neat thing is we don't know what a lot of people are doing until they start to get more complex systems. So we have police departments using it, uh, roof inspectors, um, you name it, it's amazing that people are using our system, but think of it as the Google Maps for drones. As it gets more uh, complicated, you go from level one, level two, level three, where we start to get to the big barrier, which is called beyond visual line of sight, is how do you support safe integration of drones beyond visual line of sight, and we'll talk a little bit about uh, that later. Um, but it's amazing that uh, when you have those systems in place, we remove the friction, you can start to introduce different types of mobility. Uh, so you have multimodal, and now you start to look at, you know, a 10-pound or a 15-pound drone that can go 10 miles and carry 10 pounds. I mean, that's pretty darn efficient compared to a vehicle or a $10 million helicopter uh, when you just have to transport something that's small. So, and the speed and getting around traffic. So it's exciting for us to put in the systems. We don't fly drones, we don't build drones, but we put in the systems to remove that friction that's happening in the industry right now between safety and, and systems. Um, as a company, we're a startup. Uh, we did close uh, close to 37 million uh, in this bad economy and with high valuations. So uh, this industry may not have been hearing much uh, like you used to with uh, Amazon deliveries, but there is a there is underlying systems going in to support the industry at the time. So very excited to be on stage. Thank you. Um, I wanted to also just give us so we're going to take about the next uh, maybe 20 minutes. And we're going to talk amongst ourselves, and then hopefully you guys are all formulating questions and ideas. Uh, and I'd encourage it not to be just questions, but also ideas. Uh, we don't have the cornerstone of ideas. You guys are at South by. You're innovators. You're entrepreneurs. You know what is it that we can learn from this conversation as well? Um, and also, Michael is going to also at the very very end of this take one minute and give us his personalized update on SVB and uh, what's going on because. He raised thirty-some million dollars, but does he have thirty-some million dollars? That's gonna, a pretty we're low find blow. out at the end. We're gonna, we're gonna I, wait I, that I to the end. Blow. <laughs> I'm using my personal credit card right now. <laughs> but we have some very smart people helping out. But I yes. will talk about that. Yeah, it'll be fun. Um, so I wanted to uh, uh, continue keeping this right now at that big idea. So product market fit, right? And then more importantly, is big problem. So what big problem are we solving? I think it's very easy. Especially drones, they seem so so interesting. We see them all the time. We see them, frankly, used uh, most of the time. We see them used in war. We see them used in surveillance state. We very rarely see them used as what we would call drones for good. So what I'd like to do is ask, um, uh, start with I think Dr. Scalia, and and think about the immensity of the problem that is being solved, and um, maybe even some ideas, Joe, because I know Joe has also spent a ton of time on not just. Um, uh, do I use a drone? Like, oh, knee-jerk, let's use a drone. But which one is the better quality of trip for the organ or for the patient or for the uh, uh, blood sample or whatever type of thing that we're using? And Joe's done a lot of research in that, which I think will be very interesting and illustrative. Uh, and then how are you using this now within your day-to-day -day and within your system? 
Got it. Thank you. Um, it's a lot there. I feel like I could talk for an hour and a half about it. I won't. Um, I know you can because we do talk for <laughs> a hours lot, at a time. A long time. Um, so, you know, the, the immensity of the problem. This is a huge problem. There are 110,000 people listed for an organ transplant, but it's an artificially small number. There are, you know, one in seven humans has kidney dysfunction. And if five or 10% of those people require dialysis or treatment that could result in a transplant, you're talking about an incredibly large number of patients. Probably two, somewhere between two and four million Americans would potentially benefit from a solid organ transplant. But we only do about 43,000 a year. Now, 43,000 is a victory. Every year it goes up. That's awesome. But we're barely scratching the surface. You know, transplant saves enormous amounts of money for the healthcare system because we obviate then the need for chronic medical care, right? So if you don't have a transplant and you're an organ failure, that costs a lot of money every year. Lots of people, time, and effort are spent caring for those patients. If we replace that system with a transplant, patients live longer and don't require a lot of those therapies. So when we do a kidney transplant, as an example, we save about $2.7 million every time we do the transplant, including the cost of the organ. And so that's pretty remarkable. And so we have a huge need, millions of people who have organ failure. We have a cost savings, but we've run into a challenge with the ability to access, uh, even frankly, the, the number of potentially available donors today. So the problem is huge. What's interesting about the finances of this um, from, a, from a business argument standpoint is that today the transplant industry, we've calculated, we think it's about $30 billion, right? about a $30 billion industry based on the 43,000 organs that are currently transplanted. And if we just look at the number of potential donors out there today, if we were to optimize the system using the Medigo platform, which is the reason that we built, um, that number could increase to $150 billion with the attendant savings. That's remarkable. And in the United States, where we, we waste about $1 trillion, with a T, $1 trillion a year of real money, on waste, this is a huge opportunity for us to save. So the problem is enormous. Um, on boots on the ground, how does that problem affect your life? Well, as I mentioned earlier, if you can't do the transplant, yeah. So so here, so if you can't do the transplants, um, you know, you know, there's there's got to be technologies we've hypothesized that can help us do that. One would be connectivity for data sharing in a platform that we now call Medigo, which is widely distributed around the country now. Very proud of that. And then the second is innovative shipment. Innovative shipment. Well, right now it takes about 50 people, humans, to touch an organ um, in order to move it from point A to point B, donor to recipient hospital. When I was in Baltimore, we frequently get organs from Philadelphia, which is only about 90 miles away. Um, it's only about 90 miles, and it would take 12 to 15 hours. <laughs> this is not, it's not very long. Like, it's not a very long, so we thought to ourselves, this is a perfect, perfect opportunity to begin exploring helipad to helipad innovative UAV shipment of organs, right? I mean, if you could go, you could obviate the needs um, for um, all these multi multiple couriers and traffic and challenges in both urban environments and, frankly, underserved areas in more rural communities using drones. Um, and it turns out that um, although it was a little crazy when we initially came, you know, when we initially started promulgating this idea, that the industry has really supported it because we all understand that there's an enormous need which could be met with UAV, and that's really exciting. Um, I'll just add to this comment, uh, add to this discussion, a comment about regulatory. So if um, I support the use of UAVs to do any number of different things, but 
if you go to the FAA and you talk about move, moving life-saving organs at 40 or 50,000 per year, and you combine that, you know, compare that with moving, you know, three million pairs of socks, you can see that if you spend a little bit more time getting the system built right around life-saving organs, there may be an opportunity to build an infrastructure that supports things that go beyond that. And so I think there's there's an opportunity. There's a huge opportunity. It's been embraced, and there's a big problem. Um, and I'll just 90 seconds on um, on why. So uh, when this all started, again, as a coming out of direct human need to do more transplants, we, we began studying in the laboratory exactly what happens to an organ when it's moved by a car, by a plane, by a drone. Um, and it turns out that everything from low amplitude vibration that is experienced in a helicopter, which can actually do damage to the spinal column of a pilot, uh, is different when you look at a drone that is uh, electrified and has RPMs of 30,000 and very little vibration. We took that to the laboratory, converted it to a, uh, converted to a, a model where we could study the, the direct impact on actual tissue and, and found that um, you know, vibratory effects that are seen in, for example, helicopters and airplanes have a direct ability to program cells for death over a period of about several weeks after that organ gets transplanted. Um, very cool study that just actually came out in the IEEE. I'm happy to share that with anybody who's interested. That tells us there's a difference. Does it say the drones are the best? No, but what it says is there's a difference. There's a biological uh, interrelatedness between transportation, technology, um, and and then the outcome of transplantation. I think this is a really exciting field to be in. I'm proud to be up here as well with this group talking about that. Thank you, Joe. Um, when we think about that, I know uh, uh, Kevin works on a number of different areas, but one of the most important things that Kevin uh, and the um, uh, organ procurement industry is focused on is equity and access. And um, uh, my companies recently joined with Kevin working in West Texas, and it was a fascinating project I'm asking to touch on called Matador. And one of the most interesting things about it was it was not about what we all think of the sexy, let's fly a drone, but it was about there are real-world equity and access challenges that can be addressed by using machine learning and drones and uh, clearing the way for that. So, Kevin, I wonder if you wouldn't mind and maybe talking about just the problem of equity and access in transplant and then how this is one of the ways of, of addressing it. Sure. Actually, uh, absolutely. <clears throat> um, so, talking about West Texas, I'm not sure if anybody here is from West Texas, but the distances and the landscape um they're they're vast and then you bring in eastern uh, new mexico you bring in aspects of of uh, oklahoma and so forth one of the biggest problems we have around um health equity and access is around physical distance as well as the problems we have with our healthcare system so there is a epidemic of kidney disease kidney failure in those particular areas and unfortunately, um, a significant number of patients in that particular area who are on dialysis choose not to or are not offered the option of kidney transplantation. And so every year you're on dialysis, you increase your risk of death by 30%. So over five years on dialysis, and, and Dr. Scalia can clarify this, it's a, it's a slow dwindle away. So... What we did in West Texas with Texas Tech, Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center, this is an ongoing project, to the edge, it's an innovation group. We are finding ways 
to not only deal with moving blood samples and tissue samples for infectious disease testing from, let's say, from Lubbock, much more rapidly to the labs that we work with in Fort Worth. So before you can proceed with an organ donor, you have to have infectious disease testing results and you have to have tissue typing for matching. Right now, those samples are before this, we're just being driven, and that's a long drive. Or we were we'd be able to try to put those samples on an, uh, a, a commercial flight leaving that airport, but that airport closes at 10. So it gets driven, and so it adds time. So getting back to the health equity and access thing, if we can increase donation, we can actually combine up other projects. For example, using the UAS technology, deliver medications, pick up blood samples for those patients who are four hours away by car who are being evaluated for kidney transplant. So many of those individuals don't want to drive six hours you know, for, for these appointments. So there are a lot of other opportunities. And we also layered on other projects like in veterinary medicine, herd health, food, deserts, vaccine delivery, vaccination clinics, and so forth. And then finally, in November, we did 17 proof of value concepts around this. And the most important one was we used um, beautifully donated organs for research of liver, kidney, pancreas, originated in Lubbock, made a, a flight on an uh, optionally piloted aircraft to Oklahoma City, which is a long way away, Oklahoma City back to San Antonio, and San Antonio back to Lubbock. These are all the areas where we allocate organs in those general areas. And so it was a practical demonstration. And fin final thing, which is really important for all of you guys out there thinking about, is this, is this actually financial, financially viable? Organ procurement organizations like ours will pay for this service. This is mission critical, and it is less expensive than a charter jet as we evolve this. So... In our small piece of this, this gives us a really, really great example of making this successful and practical. Thank you, Kevin. So what I'm hearing is that this may be a superior quality of trip. There's a dire, urgent need. And I'm like everybody else in the audience saying, why can't I get... Uh, a pizza by drone. Why, why is it that um, I see the world using drones all over the place, but I don't see them in areas that, you know, like this. So, Michael, one of the, the biggest problem around this, which Michael is solving, is, is reliability, safety, and then equally important, how do we get the um, general public, as in all of us, to be comfortable that a drone's not going to fall on our head, that uh, when we see the drone flying over our head, we say, we, we hopefully, we actually don't even see it or don't hear it or anything. It's quieter than anything else you'll see. So, Michael, help us understand what are the hurdles to get there and what are the areas and ways that uh, Airspace Link and you are solving those problems for Joe and, um, uh, and Kevin. Yeah, and, and I want to touch on what Kevin was talking about um, in social equity and food deserts and things like that. So we're in a unique position Again, we're not a single operator. We get to see all types of operations happening within our platform. And we are seeing, and a lot of these are happening quietly because of that. It's being tested. Uh, it's about understanding community engagement. Do they even see it? Don't put it on the news. Let's just see if people react to it. Um, we've supported um, 
you know, uh, food deliveries to people with mobility challenges. Uh, during COVID, we had COVID test kit deliveries being done constantly. People didn't even know about drones doing that. Uh, we had operations set up in Michigan called uh, Miracle Mile with, uh, you know, Medigo and Mission Go, and the operations were running back and forth. No one had a clue through a highly dense uh, populated area for weeks on end, running operations between the hospital and labs. And it was neat because we we're right next to a Whole Foods, and we were videotaping to see if people even looked up. Not once, because it really just looks like a small helicopter out in the distance because the size ratio at 400 feet, uh, there's nothing there. So it was really interesting. All those studies have been submitted. And now those have turned into much larger projects now in Texas and Michigan and North Dakota. I could tell you there's operations happening uh, when those roads get shut down and there's a, a medical emergency and you're 70 miles out and there's five feet of snow. Those drones are, are dropping off EpiPens. They, again, and, and, but there is a challenge, and that gets to why don't I? Why can't you just send a drone out there? The drones are smart enough. I think we all probably know that these drones can go wherever you need. They're durable. They have amazing precision. But at Airspace Link, we have to deal with safety. That is our number one system. Is once that drone goes beyond your visual line of sight, how do you know there's not a crop duster coming through? How do you know that there's not a, uh, a helicopter? How do you know the FBI is not coming through there and they don't want to be seen? That is what we have to deal with as a company, is that we have to be that bridge between government and the, and the, and the public as to what is happening. Is there a temporary flight restriction? And, and how do we communicate? And then, so there's certain rules and regulations today, but now you can start to get a waiver as long as you can prove to the FAA that you have amazing reliability, which you can talk about from a drone perspective. But then you need to take that reliability and how often it crashes and impacts a person on the ground. Or, and then we have to put that into our model. And then we have to put that model against the number of people you're going to fly over per hour, um, the number of roads you're going to cross over. Uh, and then you need to uh, keep track of how do you know there's not a helicopter coming through. So this gets into expensive process. And what we've been able to do is start to tie into infrastructure that putting in a, a radar system that the FAA is comfortable at low altitude starts to allow us to show that, hey, this is a digital visual observer that you can connect in and take the burden off of the operators to prove it to the FAA. And then once the operator gets that system approved, well, what if the public safety wants to use it? What if Amazon wants to use it? What if Walmart wants to use it? Well, all of a sudden you have a conflict. So what we're doing is creating a neutral platform to support beyond visual line of sight and then trying to keep the FAA standards, which is a 7 to the negative 10 probability of an impact of any sort. And then we have to prove that those radars are up and running and they have backup systems and fiber optics and all of this stuff that blows your mind. That's why we don't have drones dropping off pieces because we don't have a system yet that can prove that they're not going to run into something in the, in, the, in the air or on the ground. But we do have a formula. It's just expensive. requires infrastructure just like electric cars require charging stations and things like that. There are tools and systems that can help do that. And that's what I'm excited is we do have a barrier, but we do have a path to help that, it just requires government system. It's a pretty incredible vision, and um, you know, for those of us like Kevin and myself that are trying to um, materially change the way that we think about transplant, it's incredible to hear people with a vision like this thinking five, ten years ahead to support the work that you may you may not even know you're supporting. Um, but we're looking at that with with great big eyes, thinking, "Oh my gosh, that's going to be great." Um, you know, we've been able to um, think about with, on our team at Medigo how we connect different 
players in the transplant space. And I was hoping, Scott, you could talk a little bit about the vision there, right? So we've got some really uh, some killer opportunities and ideas. And I think maybe for the audience, we can talk a little bit about the vision of these companies and how UAS comes together with Life Critical uh, and what that might look like for the future. Well, I'll be quick because I'm the moderator, but I will answer the question. Um, I, I started with this uh, preamble, and then Michael said something really important. And the preamble was, imagine uh, when you have uh, choices amongst transportation and modes of transportation beyond I have a commercial plane, I have a private plane, I have a helicopter, I have an automobile, whatever. And then each one of those is now uh, semi-autonomous or autonomous. Imagine also that um, uh, I'm integrating uh, the same exact way we do it now is I, um, I, walk, I walk a box downstairs, I put it in a car, I take it to the airport, I fly it out either on a commercial plane or a private plane. But imagine all those things are now triples and doubles, you know, the complexity of what is the machine learning to understand. And again, imagine that in what we would call uh, two things in this industry are quite unique. One, everything is just in time. Imagine a world, everything in this industry is just in time. It's super, super challenging compared to other types of uh, healthcare. Um, and then the other thing is everything is what we would call sandlot baseball, which means that every single day, every morning, there is a new group of surgeons and couriers and um, airplanes and um, uh, patients and donors and families. All of these things change constantly throughout the country all the time. So when we think about that as a decision support, the next wrinkle is going to be, and again, we've seen that here at South by a lot, the autonomous um, uh, companies are going to go to the hospital and they're going to say, wow, I would like to have a contract with you, you know, uh, MUSC, and I'm Waymo, right, or I'm Chevy Cruise, or I'm this extraordinary startup called Mission Go, and I fly unmanned aircraft for you. Um, so how is the hospital system, the, the actual user, going to make choices around these decisions? And that's what we focus on now is, is we're gathering all this data and we're gathering the data around, most importantly, things like what is the clinical side of it, the therapeutic quality of trip between a car and an airplane and a whatever. And I would often joke, should we just put it in a Rolls Royce and drive it? It's probably better, you know, than putting it on a helicopter or whatever. So... All of those things around um, uh, multimodal decision support, I believe, is one of the most challenging things that's going to come about. And I think, interestingly, when Michael talks, you can all hear a similarity to what he's saying, which is detect and avoid collision avoidance amongst traditional and autonomous, but it also is going to be ground transportation and um, uh, deconflicting. So uh, our, my personal vision and what I do here. And what I set out to do was, there's a lot of ways to think about this, but fundamentally it's going to be, how are you providing to the just-in-time, critical-life medical industry decision support about which mode of transport should I take to deal with not just the logistics, but the clinical challenge in front of me? So, um, so I'm going to, I, I get to ask a question now, but thank you for that. Um, so... There's been an interesting uh, change here, which which hits everybody. So post-pandemic, maybe maybe folks have, are aware. Maybe you're in a secondary or tertiary airport, and all of a sudden you don't have any flights anymore. You know the airlines are not really coming back to secondary and tertiary airports. So commercial airlines are not there anymore. So this what might have been uh, viewed as a um, um, you know a, a, a let's do it every once in a while, or it's you know carbon footprint or something like that. 
becomes there's actually a glaring need in the market for a new way of cheaper, faster, lower uh, uh, numbers of carriers um, uh, flights. And um, it gets back to what Michael also said something about, which we often say in the drone world for Mission Go, we say, I I envision I, I, I a world where it doesn't take a 5,000-pound helicopter with two pilots and 600 pounds of aviation fuel to move a 10-pound box. And I think we should be all looking at that also in these rural opportunities. So I don't, Kevin, I mean, you wouldn't mind just sort of keeping it to that, but the less, there's just no flights. Yeah, great, great point. So um, even pre-pandemic, um, as organ donation and transplantation has been expanding, in addition to changes in what we call the distribution or allocation system, which is moved from when there's a donor in sort of a local area, that most of those organs would be allocated to local patients. So there was a, a public policy change into what's called continuous distribution, which is aimed at increasing health equity and access. So people don't suffer so much from accidents of geography, right? Accidents of geography is a huge challenge that we have. Pandemic hits, we lose pilots, we have a shortage of private charter um, uh, air assets as well as pilots, and then also a, a, a real slowdown on access to commercial air. Meanwhile, we're, we're, we're working, donation is increasing, and we're trying to figure this out. And so um, post-pandemic, we're starting to see some recovery. However, the, the, with the broader allocation and continuous distribution, which is a good thing from the standpoint of giving people more equitable access to organs based on how sick they are and how far away they are, um, it is getting much, much more complex. And this is in the heat of the battle. This is in the heat of the battle. We have a case. We need to move quickly, or we have a heart team coming in, or we need to move one of our teams, for example, from Houston to another place. And we're calling, and despite having very committed, very dedicated air charter management groups, we can't get a flight. And so we have to delay, or that center has to say we can't take that organ and it goes to the next, next patient on the list, which is, a, it, which is a wonderful thing for that patient, but it's a disaster for the patient who was missed, right? So the way I look at you know, this technology and this capability is, is really sort of on um, multiple areas, but for this point, one, it can increase our effectiveness in addition to efficiency, and two, it can increase what we call, con you know, you all probably work in healthcare somewhere, so patient safety, right? Every single time we have a handoff, we have an opportunity for disaster. Handoffs are the enemy in the healthcare system. So, unfortunately, you know, we have had situations across the country where an organ is allocated, it's placed, it's on the way, we're using commercial um, systems and good people, dedicated, but with the complexity of, you know, flight changes and movement of cargo and stuff, sometimes there have been kidneys that, or other organs that are supposed to get to someplace and they don't get there because the organ gets lost. Believe it or not, it's not a huge number, 
but it is a catastrophic system failure for that individual. That brings back to another aspect of what we're really, really pleased to be doing and working and learning from, from Scott and Dr. Scalia is on a tracking system. So we know where organs are all the time. So even though a courier or an airline may say, well, the kidney is in the cargo hold of this, and we're looking in their system going, no, it's not. It's sitting on the, you know, the baggage area. That is, that is a critical step for us to ensure uh, an increased reliability. So it's a huge advance that is continuing to evolve. And um, so appreciate that. Thank you. Um, Michael, I'm going to ask you something. We have a couple minutes before we want to get questions. Um, one of the things that's exciting about Michael on this conversation is that you're, you're hearing a lot of uh, a specific critical medical use. But, um, Michael, could you give us an idea how other ways the government and private sector, but it, principally government, is using drones and in the work that you're doing be conflicting for other types of safety cases, other types of public use cases, uh, some of the other areas that you're seeing? Yeah. So we got a lot of stories, so I'm always curious which one, based on what people said. Um, I did want to bring up one other uh, item, and then I'll get to that. But um, one of the big things right now, to give you an example, was cross-border. Uh, up in Michigan between uh, Detroit and Windsor, Canada, uh, this border shutdown. That's $34 million of cargo, so it's the busiest um, border crossing in North America. Uh, that shut down. It's very hard to get through that border. And there's a lot of companies that actually sit on both sides of the river and can see each other and can't get a chipset for their automotive company. It's costing them $10 million a day if they can't get a system across. And it's very expensive. Even though they can see across the river, they still have to package it up, have to go all across the bridge, onto a truck, and, and through the whole network to get to where they can actually see. So uh, there is a press from government there. We do actually have a contract with the government and uh, automotive companies to create a corridor to create drone operations. It would be the first in North America. So governments are seeing some supply chain, and I'm sure medical goes across there. I don't know how if organs go across borders, but um, that's an example of having to free up an area with a different type of mobility. Um, but on that, uh, from the diversification of that, is uh, now we're seeing governments buying a lot of drones, and that's uh, starting to do, whether it be roof inspections or pipeline inspections, um, uh, uh, forest fire, Again, instead of bringing in a, uh, a helicopter, you're using drones for different types of use cases. Dangerous jobs, uh, you know, there's a lot of bridge inspections that require someone to go out there and climb around where a drone can run a scan of that system. So it's all, there's a lot of use cases that we hear. We had a, a city come up to us recently and said, oh, yeah, we use drones for counting deer. Uh, that was, I mean, so they run a drone. And here's the interesting, again, they have to be line of sight and and go and it does the thermal camera and they count the number of deer every quarter because uh, it's a big deal to either increase population or reduce population. Cattle herders, precision agriculture, uh, you know, checking the fields for and getting information back if they need to add more water or change the chemicals and increase the yield. There's so many use cases that come across and our job ultimately is to how do we allow that to happen without a bunch of people driving out there. Uh, it's called drone in the box. The ability to store a drone somewhere in an area that can run operations, whether it be roof inspection or respond to a, a first responder or drop off of an EpiPen. And that's our job to create those systems to connect into, to tie into. You know, we see one company that, uh, you know, 
because the drone lands on a train. The train drives for, you know, 80 miles, 100 miles, and then when it gets close to its target, it pops off after charging and then does the final. So that's the type of multimodal we're seeing. We do have a company that did it with a, it has built in, drone built into a truck. Soon as it saw hit traffic, it launched the drone and it flew into the airport to the helicopter. It didn't have to get walked and handed off five times to get to the airport. It just launched and we were able to air track control it from traffic in the city into the airport in 10 minutes. That's what we want to see. That took a lot of pre-work to make that happen. It took months. The idea is to make that repeatable and scalable and um, use cases. Like I said, you could do two operate. You could drop off something and collect data on the way back. Um, you know, for traffic data. It's just it's amazing. Thank you, Michael and uh, Kevin and Joe. So uh, I'd like to open up uh, for conversation with uh, folks. We have a we have a microphone, but the place isn't so big. If you want to just say what you're saying, that's great too. But happy to jump up and but um, uh, yeah. So yes, and um, Kevin um, can give you an interesting, well, anyway, just tell him about Matador and all the stuff you're doing with uh, big airplanes. Yeah, great, great thought. So as part of the Matador project, um, we are working with a group called Aerolane. And so with the optionally piloted aircraft, which is, I, I'm not a pilot, um, but it's a, a large uh, Cessna, I guess. Um, and so we have now, we just started this on February 28th, which was kind of a, not a financial spinoff, but an operational spinoff of the Matador project. So we have a, a fixed wing, optionally piloted aircraft stationed at the old Air, Faith, Air Force Base in Lubbock at, you know, Reese, Reese Air Force Base now, Reese Technology Center. And so they are, we've done, I think, around 28 missions already to move, again, blood samples, tissue samples from Lubbock into Fort Worth with an optionally piloted aircraft, so pilots and so forth. There's a second one that's being stationed in um, Dallas. It's difficult It's difficult to access. We don't know how to do it, and maybe this is something you guys are working on, which I think you are, is, again, this idea of the coalition of the willing. So private pilots with their air assets being willing to sign up to move things at various times. Not people, not people, but samples and so forth, because we have very stringent, you know, of course, passenger and recovery team requirements and so forth for their safety. So I hope that helps, and thanks for your interest, because you know what? We'll take all helpers, right? It's a community mission. I, uh, great points. Um, so Medigo, which we've referenced a number of times, I want to be clear about. Met Medigo is seeking to end the organ shortage by building a data bridge that exists between all the different stakeholders. And part of what it does is not only track people and field resources like those family liaisons that go out and have those difficult conversations with family members, uh, with, uh, with the organ banks, but it also connects people like myself at transplant hospitals to say, where, when will the organ arrive specifically? Now, what's beautiful about that, if you think about it, is, uh, and what gives me the goosebumps because I'm a big nerd, is all the data that gets generated. So we don't know where all those pilots that could be used ought to be, when, why, and how. But now that we have all the data collected through Medigo's 
seamless supply chain connectivity. We can say, right, as we gather that data, we ought to have more pilots here, 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 and here, and augment that with these these much more substantial UAVs that can then pull a last mile, a first mile, a fetch, and so forth, or even go helipad to helipad in the New York City, Chicago, DC, or whatever. And so, uh, you know, Medigo, as it builds out this platform, should should bring to the table the data to synergize with the work at Airspace Link to build that map of a uh, heat map of what it really looks like to move organs around the United States and save more lives. Yeah, you have another great point I meant to start with is that uh, autonomous is, we have a picture up here of a machine we use, it's about as big as a conference table, very effective, 50 mile radius, can carry 15, 20 pounds, but autonomous aircraft and cars can be anything, right? So we certainly look at the military where an entire airplane, a 747 effectively, is already semi-autonomous. So it's something for us all to think about. Autonomous aircraft, autonomous uh, cars are going to get really, really big also. Uh, other ideas and questions? So I'm going to answer the first one because we probably don't have time for a inside baseball on transmetics. But transmetics is a, uh, there are a number of different devices that do that and extend the life. Frankly, what we say is they're all going to be dislocated in non-use. You don't need any of that stuff because the fundamental problem is logistics and supply chain efficiency using drones and stuff like that, which Medigo does. So you don't need those anymore. But we're happy to talk about that offline. Um, distance, um, I think as we look at it now, and Michael could weigh in, but concept for us around distance right now is it's multimodal. And we don't need an aircraft uh, displacing a uh, commercial jet going you know, across country. What we need is problems with what um, uh, Kevin said around equity and access is two things. It's, it's around uh, uh, rural distance, but it's also around highly urban. Right, so super highly urban also has the same problem. A, there are certain neighborhoods in America that don't get as many Ubers, that don't have taxis. You know, maybe they don't have credit cards, they can't get an Uber or a taxi. So how are we accessing those kinds of urban neighborhoods very equitably, inexpensively? And then the same would be true for the rural, but um, you know, that's how we think about that. And then the multimodal part of it is, uh, again, getting back to decision support, what I, what I hope that we'll garner from this panel is, we're not just saying, just use drones, that's, that's how we're gonna make our money. It's, there's a whole lot of different ideas that are gonna happen, and how are we all gonna integrate them appropriately, so you're using the best one for the use case, but most importantly with people like Michael is, we barely have the option to use drones right now, right? Whether it's a large one, or a, a one that you wanna carry a person or an entire medical team on. Um, so uh, I think I, I hopefully that helps your question there. I, I'd like I mean, to ch can I chime in with the bio, the bio. Yeah, but just want to I want to be mindful of our time. Yeah, you have, you have a question. Anybody could maybe give two briefly, like Michael, if you don't mind, two things that would answer that. Maybe two most important things to make this work, and you only get two. <laughs> uh, <laughs> having a seamless process that if you need to get something from A to B, it will pick the most efficient. Uh, and it's the operation, whether it be on the ground or in the air or a combination of multimodal. That's number one, is being able to click a button just like you do in a car. We get in a car and we jump in a car and we, it's easy to go from A to B through the city. Right? But if you start flying through the sky, it's like, well, we got to do this and who's that? It, it's not clear. And that's number one for us. So the company is clearing that process because there's so many steps. There's still some manual process that we actually have to go through. Um, we're trying to uh, fix that right now. Um, and then I'm going to actually hit on the one question about different types of drone. We, we do work with 10 different drone companies, um, but they're all on the Conos. 
uh, you know, 80 miles, 80 miles an hour drone does deliveries. You got a 11 pound drone that does four pound deliveries in an urban area. You have, and then everything in between. Uh, and those are different types of operators and different types of industries with different types of uh, reliability systems. So as an operator, and that was someone else as a private pilot, I think he's gone, but um, uh, there's an opportunity to fly beyond visual line of sight. You're not going to be a part 107 drone pilot. You're going to be a pilot because you need that situational awareness. So there's another job opportunity for pilots that you can start to operate drones in a more sophisticated way. So. Kevin, what are the two things? Well, you get one thing now because Michael right, had, got, Michael had right, three thanks. things. You know, the most, the, really the most important thing is for more people to be donors. And you've seen it. You've seen it, and it's, it, now it doesn't make the front page. hasn't made the front page of the newspapers or the websites, you know, for, for a decade. So register if you're in Texas or anywhere, donatelifetexas.org. Or from a national base, it doesn't matter what state you're in, go to registerme.org. You guys are influencers and leaders. You have platforms. Please encourage your friends and families and colleagues to, to register to be donors. That's the most important thing because the more organs that we have for transplantation, the more people we can help. And then know in the background that these experts are working on improving systems to make sure that those donated organs get to where they're supposed to be on time. Okay, Dr. Scalia, take us home. So I guess I just got the one, but I'm going to wrap a whole bunch of topics up into the one. Um, I think what's most critical is a better recognition of the interconnectedness of biology and technology. So by understanding where things are, when they will arrive, and the decrement in the tissue quality that occurs during that event, in order to understand the outcome of the recipient, changes this from a logistics problem to a digital therapeutic problem, and a recognition that technology can actually save a life. If you can move an organ more seamlessly, faster, and safer, that 71-year-old is around to tow your car and then have a coffee afterwards. Um, you know, if, if we don't, we, you know, that person's 68 and not 71. They don't go to the weddings. They don't get to go to the exciting events in their life and enjoy that time. That's, I think, the most critical part. And one of the things that I couldn't be prouder about sitting up here on this panel, which we talked about much a lot about last night, was at Medigo, where we seek to end this organ shortage, we are combining right? Real-time communication with geospatial awareness and biology to improve and save lives. And um, that kind of data is powerful. It's very exciting. And uh, couldn't be prouder to share this moment with all you guys up here. Yeah, that's, uh, I get 11, even with daylight savings or leap forward or whatever we got. So thanks, everybody, for coming to listen to our panel. Uh, we can certainly answer any further questions, but thank you very much.